Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'm speaking with Nicholas Freudenberg, who is a distinguished professor of public health at the City University of New York Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy, director of the Cooney Urban Food Policy Institute, and founder of Corporations and Health Watch a website that monitors the impact of corporations on health. He is also the author of the brand new book just out from Oxford University Press, At What Cost? Modern Capitalism and the Future of Health. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I wonder if you can begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself and how you came to academia. Sure. I came of age in the 1960s, and so I was active in the movements of the 60s, the student movement, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, and later the uh, environmental movement. And uh, in those early years of activism, uh, as I began to understand how uh, political and economic and social structures influenced how people live, I wanted a career that allowed me to both uh, participate in creating a more just and healthier world, but also contribute to understanding. And so public health seemed a very attractive field, uh, an opportunity both to do uh, community work and organizing work, but also scholarship in understanding the forces that shape patterns of health and disease. after spending some time at Columbia University as an undergraduate and being involved in the movements there, I uh, finished my undergraduate education at City University and got introduced to uh, what has been a, a really important and wonderful institution, one that is committed to uh, providing people who don't always have access to higher education with pathways out of poverty and the skills and competencies to confront Uh, some of the political and economic threats to our society. In my public health work, uh, I've worked with uh, communities and community organizations, city governments, uh, social movements, and my uh, academic goals have been to produce the evidence that could enable people to create healthier, more equitable, more sustainable lives for themselves and their connected ones. And how did you come to write at what cost? Yes, in the uh, public health work I was doing, both uh, with the community partners I was working with and with my students and graduates and colleagues, uh, and I've worked on such varied fields as childhood asthma, uh, environmental threats to health, childhood lead poisoning. Uh, I spent many years working on HIV and substance abuse, including 10 or 15 years working in the New York City jails. And for the last 
15 years or so, I've been working on food. And in almost every time where I was involved in developing community programs, at some point we would come up against business and against especially the big corporations and found that it was often in their interest to oppose the efforts of people trying to improve health, that their desire to uh, make a profit and to maintain control was uh, in opposition to the efforts of community residents and governments to improve health. And so I wanted to understand how that happened. And uh, in my previous book, which is called Lethal But Legal, I looked at six industries, uh, food, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, uh, automobiles, and pharmaceuticals to understand how those industries uh, contributed to uh, ill health and patterns of health and disease. And in writing that book, I increasingly got interested in capitalism and how capitalism was changing in the 21st century. And that's really what led me to uh, this book, At What Cost? Modern Capitalism and the Future of Health. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what happened to capitalism around the turn of the 21st century? So in what ways does 21st century capitalism differ from 20th century capitalism? Yes, I, uh, in, in this book, the starting point of the changes I looked at were in the 1970s, after the uh, global financial crisis, after the uh, effort by uh, particularly corporations here in the United States to turn back some of the advances, uh, one by the movements of the 60s and 70s, the civil rights movement, the environmental movement, the women's movement, uh, the consumer movement. Uh, And there are several changes that I've noticed uh, in the period from the 1970s on, and particularly in the first two decades of this century, and particularly in response to the 2008 financial crisis. One of those changes is the rapid increase in the pace of corporate managed globalization. Capitalism has always been a global system, but I think the degree to which it's global and the degree to which the drivers of globalization became the you know, 500, 1,000 largest corporations has changed dramatically, and they can move goods and services, capital, uh, people around the world uh, looking for opportunities to Uh, maximize their profits, increase their market share. And that has really had a very profound influence on health. Uh, Second change has been what people call financialization, the growth of the financial sector, speculation, banking, uh, private equity. And that has meant that there's an even greater emphasis on short-term returns, quarterly returns, and that investors have found they can make more money by manipulating finances than by making and selling things. And that has put a pressure on these corporations to make quick profits. And often those quick profits come from putting health in jeopardy, from uh, Volkswagen putting in a device to cheat environmental regulations, from uh, big from from uh, the 
uh, makers of OxyContin to look to sell addicting drugs to a mass audience. Uh, a third change has been a series of changes that people sometimes call neoliberalism, privatization, uh, deregulation, looking to shrink the role of government and expand the role of markets in making decisions. And two more changes I found particularly important. Increasingly, and especially in, this, uh, in these last two decades, that the science and technology that uh, humankind has developed has been captured by corporations and used not to benefit humanity, but to maximize their profits. And so we see in many sectors innovations that could help to improve the well-being of the world are used instead to bring new profits. And I can talk a little bit about the food industry, which I think is a good example of that. And the final change I'll, I'll mention is the increasing uh, ideological combat and corporations trying to promote certain ideas, the importance of individual responsibility rather than social responsibility, the fact that markets should be the uh, determining governing force in our society, not the public, and uh, the notion that the current system of capitalism is inevitable, that there are, as Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan said, no alternatives to this 21st century model of capitalism. So those are the changes that I think are really uh, exacerbating threats to health. And in the book, I looked at some of the uh, what I call the public health apocalypses of the 21st century, clearly the COVID pandemic, but also the climate emergency, the rising number of deaths of despair, deaths from uh, overdoses of drugs, alcohol, tobacco, uh, workplace injuries, firearms, uh, the growing burden of chronic diseases, particularly diet-related diseases, and increasingly what's making people sick and what's leading to premature death are driven by the decisions that the world's largest corporations are making. That's what I want to understand and uh, suggest what we can do about in this book, At What Cost? So the book talks about these significant trends that changed capitalism, that how they've had um, a tremendous impact on the way that people experience their daily lives. After the introduction, the book then goes on to discuss how modern capitalism has affected what you call the pillars of health. And you define those as being food, education, healthcare, work, transportation, and social connection. How did you settle on these pillars and what kinds of evidence did you draw on to explore how they've changed? Yes, I think I chose these six uh, based on the really extensive public health and medical literature that these are the foundations of health. Uh, Food, for example, uh, uh, has a profound influence on the well-being of both individuals and populations. And access to enough food and to healthy food influences all sorts of diseases. And in fact, in the United States today and in the world, the leading cause of premature death and preventable illness is unhealthy food. Uh, education, having 
uh, a high school diploma and a college degree are perhaps the most powerful predictors of a healthy life. Uh, and I uh, believe that uh, by understanding how these pillars of health, how people uh, gain them or have trouble gaining them will help us understand how the world has changed and what we can do differently in order to uh, improve health. There are other, there are other pillars of health uh, that I chose not to look at. One example is housing, uh, a very important influence on health. But I think other scholars both in public health and in other social sciences, have looked extensively at housing. And so I chose to focus on the six so that my book would be readable. So this book has a bunch of great examples, um, really um, compelling examples of each of the, how capitalism has affected each of these pillars. So you talk about <clears throat> what kinder care tells us about education and what Walmart tells us about the labor market. I wondered if you could choose just a couple of these examples <clears throat> that illustrate the argument you're making. Yes, uh, I'll, I'll give two or three. So kinder care is the largest uh, for-profit provider of child care in the United States. And Child care is a very important uh, support for health. Uh, good child care promotes healthy child development, mental health, and physical health, whereas inadequate child care uh, sets children back. Uh, high quality child care allows parents to work, to earn more income, and to feel that their children are safe. And uh, a bunch of investors found that the lack of affordable, public, high-quality childcare made that a good investment. And so they invested in companies like Kindercare and uh, moved childcare into the public, into the, into the marketplace, where people's access to childcare was dependent on their income. And I think uh, in this country, there's been a tradition of having education in the public sector. And in the, uh, my discussion of education, I show all the ways from childcare to K through 12 to higher education that uh, investors have seen education as a new potential profit center. And in doing so, have uh, disrupted and really corrupted uh, the benefits that education provides to well-being. Another example that I found particularly shocking in the healthcare was that uh, over the last uh, couple decades, uh, private equity investors have bought up uh, community oncology practices, groups of doctors providing cancer care. And they bought them up because they thought they were a good source of uh, profit, that there was a lot of money to be made on cancer. And when a private equity firm buys up an oncology practice, they look for those doctors who are most productive, who are generating the highest revenues, and those who are generating less revenues. They fire the doctors who are producing less revenues and bring in 
uh, more doctors who have shown that they can generate high revenues. And for any of us who have had a family member who has experienced cancer, we understand how disruptive it can be to have to change your doctor, to have to change your treatment regimen, to not being able to afford it. And I think that's a very clear example of how what was good for business, buying up oncology practices, increasing revenues, turned out to be bad for health uh, in a very poignant way. And I also talk about how uh, paying for cancer care ends up uh, bankrupting a high proportion of cancer patients in the United States today. So capitalism has eroded each of these pillars of health. Are there similarities and differences in how they've been affected? And um, if there are, what, what might account for those? Let me talk a little about food first. It's the uh, subject I've studied most uh, over the last period. And I think it's a very clear example of how uh, corporate-inspired changes end up harming health. And what we see globally in the food industry is increasingly the world's food supply comes from uh, a handful of very large corporations that control our food economy from agriculture to food production to retail distribution, think Walmart and Amazon. Uh, and increasingly, those sectors of the industry have found that it is more profitable and better able to be controlled to sell highly processed food uh, what some researchers are now calling ultra-processed foods. These are foods high in fat, sugar, salt, and they have really hundreds of things added to them, flavorings, colorings, uh, stabilizers, and so on, all designed to make products that can be shipped around the world, left on shelves, and uh, easily easy to be marketed around the world. They're also what, what uh, food scientists called hyperpalatable. They have the high amounts of fat, sugar, and salt that make them uh, almost impossible to say no to. But here's the problem. And here in the United States, more than 50% of our calories now come from these highly processed food. The problem is the scientific research shows that these products are most associated with the diet-related diseases, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, hypertension, that are, as I said, the leading causes of premature death and preventable illness in the US and increasingly around the world. So here's a diet that works well for the food industry, but is increasingly jeopardizing our health. Moreover, this highly processed diet is also a threat to the health of the planet. Uh, the crops that it depends on, soy, corn, sugar, palm oil, uh, produce high levels of carbon and greenhouse gases and are a major contributor to the climate, to the world's climate emergency. Also, that the business model of highly processed food is it's sold cheap so that everybody can afford it or many people can afford it. And the way it's cheap is that these companies underpay their workers. And so we have a food workforce that is increasingly food insecure without health benefits. And so 
an industry making decisions on their workforce, on their climate practices, and on their products in ways that maximize profits and endanger the world in all sorts of ways. That uh, model is uh, varied in, in a variety of ways. And I think we, in public health, we look a lot at the tobacco industry. Mm-hmm. And what we find is that the practices of the tobacco industry in promoting their uh, clearly lethal product are increasingly being adopted by other industries like the food industry. Uh, I think in public health, We've recognized for a while that what people call unhealthy commodities like food, alcohol, and tobacco were contributing to ill health. What I learned from doing work on this book is other products, like even the products of the social media companies, the Facebook, uh, Amazon, Google, also have health effects, creating a platform that makes it easier for people to become isolated, to become depressed, to become anxious, to be victims of bullying. And they choose practices that increase the number of clicks so that they can increase their revenues and so that they can sell personal information about our habits to marketers of those very unhealthy products. So again, the same strategies, they make a profit and our health is put at risk. And I think that is really the business model uh, of 21st century capitalism. Whatever it takes to make a return, uh, to make a profit, and to do it quickly, that's what they'll pursue, even if it ends up uh, jeopardizing the human health and planetary health. One of the strengths of this book, I think, is that it doesn't just focus on the problems. It has it concludes with some solutions. Um, and you write that social, here, here's a, it's a quote, this is a quote, social movements are the medicine of choice prescribed for the ills of capitalism. Can you say a little bit about why? Yes. So I think uh, as a, uh, a, a person who studies the history of public health, I think it's pretty clear over the last at least 200 years, that improvements in public health come about when reformers, health professionals, and social movements act together to improve living conditions, to improve access to those pillars of health, safe working conditions, healthy food. We saw that in the progressive era at the turn of the 20th century. We saw it in the 60s and 70s with the environmental movement and the civil rights movement. Uh, And so I believe that it is these social movements that will allow us to take on the more toxic form of capitalism. And if we look around us in the United States and around the world, uh, we really see everywhere movements, the Uh, Sunrise Movement and the uh, Climate Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, the uh, young people taking on the gun industry and its uh, promotion of uh, gun purchases. We see uh, social movements and activists who are taking this on. And the weakness of those movements, uh, as I write about in the book, is that we have uh, to, to a large extent, they've been isolated, they've been siloed, and each has worked on its own. And the uh, 
strategies that I explore in the book are beginning to connect these movements. And what I learned by looking in depth at the food movement is, in fact, the working conditions of food workers, the climate consequences of the food movement, the health consequences, they're all connected. And so we can begin to see coming together the labor movement, the uh, environmental movement, and the healthy food movement to say, this is what a transformation can look like. And in every community, people are working for healthier food. Uh, and over the next, in the coming years, we need to be uh, bringing together those movements to articulate really a different vision of what a food system and what a political and economic system could look like. We need to be thinking about what are their combination of incremental changes, healthier school food, uh, uh, a better use of food stamps and SNAP with the transformative changes where we have a much more robust public sector and a diminishing, shrinking market sector in food that would lead us to a healthier world. And in my work, I think many people are open to that alternative vision. And I think the defeat of Donald Trump and the new uh, beginning uh, role of government that the Biden administration is promoting uh, provide an opening, an opportunity for those of us who want to articulate a different vision to advance that vision. So I'm optimistic and hopeful that we have an opportunity in the next decade to take on this more toxic form of capitalism. Nick, I wondered if you could say a little bit more about what do you think some concrete actions are that people can take? Um, and so the last chapter of the book for our listeners is called From Now to Next, How to Build a Movement for, for Another World. Um, how do we build a, build a, a, a move, um, movement that brings together all of these um, sort of special interest um, forms of activism? Sure. So I think there are uh, a few insights that I gained by looking at some of the accomplishments of the movements that have been taking on public health over the last uh, few decades. One is I think there's a really important insight uh, from the women's movement uh, that the personal is political and the political is personal. And sometimes uh, activists think that those are separate domains. And I think what I've come to believe is that we need to connect people's lived experience, their experience of uh, searching for healthy food, uh, searching for high quality childcare or education for their children, and link that to the political and economic changes. And when people uh, both understand those links and uh, have in front of them pathways to take them on in a practical, effective way, they become actors uh, and, and mobilizers of change rather than victims of oppression. And I think we need to look for ways to do that. I think the activism of teachers in uh, New Mexico and other states uh, in 2018 and 2019. Uh, I think the uh, the many efforts to organize tech workers, you know, at Amazon and Google and elsewhere. Uh, 
I think the uh, the Green New Deal is a really uh, solid example of putting issues together that will allow us to be more powerful than if we were acting alone. Uh, a, a second lesson, particularly important in the United States, given our history, and uh, we were very much reminded of this by Black Lives Matter, is to put uh, race and racism at the center of the work that we do. For so long, uh, people in ruling elites have used race to divide, uh, especially working and middle-class whites from uh, black populations and been able to prevent the unified action. And I think, you know, the example that, uh, that uh, people chose to uh, close swimming pools rather than integrate them, public swimming pools, is a clear example of how those racist attitudes end up hurting everybody because then nobody has access to those public pools. I think we need to be looking for ways where putting uh, the needs and interests of those most uh, disenfranchised and also most resilient and most willing to fight for change, Black and Latinx populations here in the United States at the front of our struggles will enable us to be much more powerful than if we allow uh, people in elites to divide those uh, struggles. So those are a few of the things I talk about in the book. Well, Nick, I think we have made it through my interview questions in record time. I think this is a new, um, a new record for me. Um, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our audience. Um, we have come to my traditional final question, which is, what's next? What are you working on now? Sure. I, I want to make one more point before turning to that. And that is to say, why did I put capitalism in the title? Uh, and, and why talk about capitalism? And for many of us who, you know, came of age in earlier eras, we're sometimes uh, reluctant to use that word, afraid that, you know, based on the McCarthy period, that we'll be stigmatized, our careers will be jeopardized, we'll be in legal trouble. But I think what I learned from both uh, At Me Too and Black Lives Matter is that we need to name our systems of oppression. And in my view, capitalism is a primary, a fundamental uh, cause of ill health. And by naming it and studying it, and we don't need to agree on what brand of capitalism or socialism comes, comes next. What we do have to agree on is that we need to understand how this form of capitalism that we're facing in the 21st century is influencing health. And if we're afraid to look at that, we're going to have trouble coming up with uh, useful guidance and developing useful strategies. What I'm looking at next, uh, I'm very interested in how people become activists, particularly activists around health, but uh, what's the trajectory from experiencing a problem to becoming an activist? And so I'm hoping in the coming years to really understand how people in the various movements that are around today, both in the United States and in other parts of the world, how that pathway from uh, experiencing trouble securing what I call these pillars of health, leads them to become active and what sustains that activism and what undermines it. And 
I hope that I can gain insights and we can gain insights about both how health professionals can help to facilitate that process into making people actors and agents of change, and also how social movements can support and reinforce activism and resist the efforts to uh, undermine it. So that's what's next. That's wonderful and so relevant, particularly as um, curricula and health professions are being revised as we speak to incorporate more advocacy work. That'll be a really um, helpful resource for people. Um, Nick, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and share your work with us. You're welcome. It was really my pleasure. <laughs>